Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Paul, we've heard from a number of analysts how the COVID 19 pandemic has accelerated trends already in effect ahead of this virus and its uh, spread. There's a question of what things will look like and how quickly these transformations can occur. Terry Jones, the perfect person to address this, a founder and former chief executive officer of Travelocity.com, founding chair of Kayak.com, current author of Disruption Off, the technological disruption coming for your company and what to do about it, a new book that's out. I'm wondering, uh, Terry, from your perspective, what do you think is the main change that's being accelerated right now that we should really keep an eye on? Well, certainly e-commerce shipments up 50% um, and surveys show people aren't going back. Uh, Instacart hiring 300,000 people, so food delivery looks like isn't going back. Uh, A Gartner survey showed almost 75% of companies say even after a vaccine, many workers will still stay home. So we're continually become more digital telemedicine got approved, right? People are doing it. I'm on the board of a remote education program that gives second chances to workers to train them how to be engineers. Our business is booming. Um, other, other things are tough. Uh, I'm a public speaker. Events are gone, right? So I'm building a TV studio in my office, and hopefully I can become virtual. Uh, so we're seeing, I think, the digital part of this change is going to be the biggest part of it. So, Terry, how about some of the, I don't know, more existing or traditional lines of business, whether it's bricks-and-mortar retail or leisure, you know, restaurants and things like that? What are some of the risks associated with some of those businesses, do you think? Is this just kind of an acceleration of maybe what was already happening? I think so. Um, you know, I suspect some restaurants will come back as ghost kitchens, right, and just those, those kitchens that just deliver. Um, retail obviously is is taking a hard hit, and we're seeing some bankruptcies there. Um, I think other traditional businesses m- may relook at their supply chains and go back to something from the 19th century, stockpiling, right? Instead of long supply chains, people are moving to 3D printers uh, to get around supply chain issues. Um, and we're seeing traditional businesses. I have a friend who's getting his groceries delivered by a little drone that drives down the street. That was prohibited before. Now it's allowed. So regulations are changing to allow business to change because of social distancing. I want a little drone delivering my <laughs> groceries, Terry. I'm wondering. Pretty cool. It, 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 it can be. It depends what the drone looks like and what it does to my home. But, Terry, I am curious yeah. um, about your experience with Travelocity.com and kayak, Kayak.com at a time when a lot of people – don't want to get on an airplane, are not going very far from home. What kind of transformation do you expect there at a time of possibly the biggest disruption ever seen in the travel industry? Well, absolutely. You know, I I ran Travelocity after 9-11, and that was extremely difficult. Travel came back. People got used to security. I think they're going to need trust, and airlines and hotels are working hard on that in terms of cleaning, in terms of social distancing, contacting masks, it's all a big hassle. But I think as the airlines build trust, and you just announced Delta is uh, putting on more flights, people will come back. We're already seeing that in China. It's going to take time. I think we'll see more road travel this year, much more. Uh, RV rentals are up 400% because it's your own hotel and your own restaurant. (laughs) Um, 
So I think we'll see close to home travel first. And plus, a lot of countries are still closed to, uh, to us. You know, Canada, we can't go to Europe. The uh, EU is closed right now. So until those countries open and they open convinced that, you know, America is safe to travel, we're going to see some restrictions we didn't see before. It's going to be very difficult for some hotels uh, and certainly for cruise lines. So, Terry, how about just in terms of consumer behavior? Do you expect consumers to be, you know, similar to maybe what was experienced after the Depression? I know my parents' generation, they were children of the Depression, and I think they, that infused with them for their entire lives a real sense of fiscal conservatism. Do you think we might see something like that in terms of consumer behavior and consumer spending going forward? Well, I, I read a survey recently that said we might, that people are saying they would save more, um, which which would be difficult for us as a, con- as a consumer nation. We don't want to become a nation of savers necessarily like Japan because our economy isn't set up that way. Um, however, we're seeing in, in Singapore and China, you know, shopping is coming back, albeit slowly. So I, I think businesses have to take this time to look at their business model and say, you know, those changes I've been putting off, maybe I need to make them. Maybe I need to go online more. Maybe I need to look at some of these new technologies principally need to experiment in this new world and see what works because what worked before won't necessarily work now and this is a very good time to look at your business model look at new technology and say what might change and how should i change one change that a lot of people have been talking about is the shift away from the office everyone's working from home there has been a lot of discussion about commercial real estate and what that means there as well as a shift away from urban centers as a former chief executive officer, how much credence do you give these proclamations that the office is going to be substantially smaller and possibly outside of cities? Well, I think it really depends on the industry. Uh, my son is in the video game business. There are 5,000 people. They had a prohibition against working from home. Now they're all working from home and say they're more productive. Um, call centers are shifting home permanently. Other creative businesses, I don't think it will happen. Uh, plus, remember, even if you keep some of the workers home, you're going to need twice as much space to go into the office for the workers you have because of distancing. So at least in the near term, I don't think we're going to see a hit to uh, real estate because people need the space. And some businesses are doing well because of this. I'm on the board of SonicWall, which sells firewalls and Internet security. Our business is doing very well because people at home need security, so uh, they're buying more products. Uh, so those kind of businesses, telemedicine, remote education, are doing well. Uh, I think it's a trend, though. I think many people are saying, hey, this works for many of my employees. I may not go back to the office over time. Hey, Terry, thanks so much for joining us. Fascinating discussion here as we think about how the world uh, may change as on the back end of this pandemic, including the consumer. Lots to talk about there. Terry Jones, he's a founder and former CEO of Travelocity.com, also the founding chairman of Kayak, and also the author of a latest book, Disruption Off, joining us here. Uh, Lisa, I think it's fascinating here to think about really how or if and how and to what degree the consumer behavior is going to change on the back end of this. Will we go to restaurants? Will we go to movie theaters? You know, will we get on planes? It's going to be fascinating to see how this uh, evolves, you know, over the next, uh, you know, year or two. I would argue just 
based on anecdotal experience, the working from home experiment really breaks down into several different camps, mainly those with children and those without children. (laughs) And I do have to wonder how much that's going to affect the conversation around uh, whether people go back to the office or not. Yeah, exactly. I think I know which which camp you fall in. Um, Oh, no. Oh, yeah, let's talk about personal experience. (laughs) Exactly right. At 1 p.m. Wall Street time today, the U.S. Treasury Department is going to sell $20 billion of 20-year bonds for the first time since 1986. The question is how much demand there will be for these securities, as well as what trading will be like going forth in them. RJ Gallo joining us right now, Senior Portfolio Manager and Head of the Municipal Bond Group and Head of the Duration Committee at Federated Hermes, uh, overseeing uh, more than $11 billion over seven funds. RJ, I'd love to just get started with how important today's 20-year bond sale, in your opinion, is going to be. Well, good morning, and thanks for having me. Um, I think it's particularly important in a number of ways. From a market standpoint, you just touched on how long it's been since the Treasury's auction to 20-year. So from that novel standpoint, it's particularly interesting. I think it's substantively much more important because this represents, in terms of a new security, a new on-the-run, if you will, uh, the fiscal manifestation of what we're going through, a massive deficit spend requiring the issuance of a whole new security, not just the upsizing of all the other securities, which is also happening as well. And I think that the demand in the very near term is going to be reasonably strong. I, I, I see no reason for investors, many of whom are confronting lower rates in other parts of the world amid a pandemic related economic slowdown to back away from buying treasuries in, in, in the very near term. I think over time, you look out 12 months, yields will probably be higher than here, but that's not without risk and uncertainty. So I think the demand will still be there. So RJ, we've, we've had the Fed uh, you know, step in early, step in fairly aggressively, um, and I think by most accounts doing a, a very good job, but clearly that's not going to be enough for this economy. How important is it to get another round of fiscal stimulus done in the near term? Well, you're talking to somebody who's primarily, most of my time is spent uh, on U.S. rates and municipals. And on the latter, municipals, uh, those in the muni market overwhelmingly, uh, including issuers and investors, look at the constraints under which state governments live, 49 states have a balanced budget amendment. They have to pass a balanced budget. They don't always get to stick to it in terms of actuals, but the spirit of a balanced budget amendment is very strong. Um, The federal government clearly does not. Uh, There's a strong precedent in periods of economic shock or downturn for the federal government to take advantage of its long fiscal and financial rope to assist within the federal system the state governments, and they need somewhat more help. I don't want to be alarmist. I don't believe states are going to default on their debt unless we get more fiscal relief. I like to call it relief, not stimulus. Um, That's not going to happen. States are are good credits, but they will be cutting a lot of expenditures to try to balance their stressed budgets, and they'll be raising taxes. That doesn't help an economic recovery, and the federal government has the wherewithal to prevent those outcomes. So I do think, along Chairman Powell's vein of thinking, that more should be done, although I don't think he was particularly adamant yesterday when he testified in front of the Senate committee along those lines. I think he has clearly suggested that's where he thinks the markets should go and where the policymakers, excuse me, should go. 
RJ, which states do you think are going to have to raise taxes in light of the financial burdens they're experiencing right now, at least if they don't get fiscal support? I can't, I wouldn't feel comfortable giving you specific state governments that are going to necessarily go that route, but I'll tell you Basically, this. Basically, I'm asking you, are my taxes going up <laughs> substantially? I mean, you, do you we... Live in, you, live in, you live in Manhattan, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So go on. I, think, I, mean, I hate to say it, but it's very true that, that this COVID-19 pandemic and the economic res- challenges that we face, which are profound, um, are not homogenous across the country. Uh, obviously, the tri-state New York metro area, and I used to live there, so it's got a soft spot in my heart. It's also a huge economic engine for the United States, so it's very important. Um, heavily afflicted by COVID-19 in so many ways, costs, deaths, and the challenges uh, of the situation. They're, they're profound there. You go to many other parts of the country, and it hasn't been nearly as bad. Um, I think every economy went through, every state economy went through some degree of a lockdown, shutdown, shelter in place, whatever you want to call it. And that is going to knock state revenues 10, 20, maybe even 30 percent. But it varies across these states. And I do think that the initial CARES Act response, which was bipartisan and should be praised because it was the right thing to do, um, gave an initial significant amount of money to state governments. But more does need to be done. And it probably should be scaled more directly to the need. Um, Under the CARES Act, uh, the state of Wyoming is actually getting more money from the CARES Act than they're ever going to lose. It's almost equal to their operating budget, if I recall. So that's not the case in, in, in New York, for example, or New Jersey. So I do think that the policymakers in Washington need, need to be particularly sensitive to where the challenge has been felt the greatest and to try to tailor the, the next installment, if you will, uh, of federal financial aid to the states somewhat by those needs. R.J. Gallo, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your thoughts and perspective. R.J. Gallo, Senior Portfolio Manager, Head of the Municipal Bond Group and Head of the Duration Committee at Federated Hermes, uh, joining us uh, from Pittsburgh. So, Lisa, I think, uh, you know, as R.J. was suggesting, this next round of fiscal stimulus, as we've heard really clearly from Governor Andrew Cuomo, really needs to address state and local municipalities. Yeah, although I don't know that I feel the urgency right now, certainly not um, among Republicans. And I'm hearing the conversation turn much more toward tying it to employment, such as a payroll tax cut uh, in order to help support workers on the back end of this crisis. Yeah, it's interesting just to see how this plays out, but uh, clearly uh, the expectations are that more fiscal stimulus is needed. Uh, the question is how much goes directly to uh, consumers and how much goes to state and local governments to support teachers and firefighters and the like. So that is being debated as we speak in the halls of Congress. Well, there's been a lot of concern about the consumer here on the heels of the pandemic, and we're seeing that in some of the retail numbers coming out, some brutal retail sales. But certain retailers are actually doing quite well. We had some really solid top-line numbers out of Target and Lowe's today to break down what's going on in the world of U.S. retail. We welcome Seema Shah. She's a director of consumer and retail trends at Credit Intel based in New York. Seema, thanks so much for joining us again. Let's just start with nice the big box. Great. Appreciate it. The big box retailers, Target and Lowe's. Mm-hmm. What should you take away from there? What, what should investors really be focusing on? I think what we saw from Target, Lowe's and Walmart and Home Depot yesterday is that the essential retailers, the ones that were able to keep their doors open, even if they had to meet their customers in and manage their store traffic, we saw their comps go up about low double digits, let's say 10 to 12 percent. 
uh, across those names. And significantly, they saw a huge surge in their online sales. So these guys tended to do well because they were open and they were selling what customers needed at that time, which was essential merchandise. And I would say all of them commented on the fact that ending April and going into Q2, they saw an acceleration in their sales, likely due to some of the stimulus money hitting consumers' wallets. But that trend has sort of continued the first two weeks of May. But the retailers that weren't essential, like Kohl's and Urban Outfitters, you know, the story was much different. So there seems to be this consolidation of power among these big retailers, Mm -hmm. and they're continuing to branch out into an increasing number of avenues. I'm just wondering if you can give some insight into the costs that they are bearing in order to continue business right now. In other words, either paying some of their employees more, whether it's an increasing charge Mm -hmm. for deliveries. What are we seeing there? You're definitely seeing a huge investment, I would say, across the board by these retailers into their workers, their associates, and that includes, you know, maybe, you know, temporary increase in health benefits, paid time off, higher wages. So that definitely impacted the margins, um, I would say, of these retailers across the board. The total value uh, varied depending on the retailer, but I would say a lot of the cost that you saw for Q1 really had to do with making sure employees and customers were safe and healthy. And I think going forward, as things open up, some of those costs will remain, particularly the cost to keep the stores clean and safe and whatnot as people come back to the stores. So there is that shift and there is a lot of cost, but the other cost they face is the acceleration of certain omni-channel investments or certain initiatives uh, that maybe they were going to do in two to three years that they had to accelerate, like curbside pickup or you know, trying to maybe same-day delivery, things like that that they wanted to offer to their customers uh, in order to get that sale and for customers who are uncomfortable about going into the store. Sima, what's the uh, the status of the supply chain here? There were some concerns that, you know, supply a product from certain parts of the world and transportation mm-hmm. would hamper some of the retailers. What are they seeing or what are they telling you about their supply chains now and, and going forward? So going now, things seem to have normalized a bit. Product, um, let's say like something like electronics or product that's still coming from China, there's still a little bit of a lag. But I think most of the retailers have been saying that their vendors have been working with them to increase production and work on improving in-stock levels, particularly for high-demand items. So it is uh, slowly getting better as things have sort of calmed down and stores are reopening. There's definitely less out of stocks uh, you're seeing across the board. But going forward, it might have implications as to where these companies source some of their products, even their vendors, right? Maybe you don't want to have everything international. There might be more uh, thought to have some domestic production. So I think we might see changes over the long term as to how people think about their supply chain. So moving away from the big uh, mainstay retailers that sell what everybody Mm -hmm. needs, let's go to some of those that have really been struggling, the brick and mortar that are filing for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Even Marcus perhaps exemplifies it the best. We were talking Mm -hmm. last year about how they were investing in the experience of shopping. They are now bankrupt. I'm wondering whether the experience (laughs) is dead. Um, it's not, I don't know that the experience is dead as such, but I think some of these guys got into the experience business too late and many of them were already sort of on very fragile ground before COVID hit. And this just accelerated that JC Penney is another example of one which had been sort of hanging out, hanging out, and then just couldn't go any longer when they finally had to shut down their stores for an extended period of time. And I think that's what you saw uh, across the department store space. And even with some specialty guys, 
Um, Pier 1 did file for bankruptcy, but is now closing a bunch of their stores and liquidating because it's not likely that they'll be able to come out. So I think there's situations like this that were company-specific because they were too slow to catch on to what consumers wanted ahead of time. I think there's still demand for luxury product and specialty merchandise, but the experience has to be good. And I think now you have to be top of, you had to have been top of mind before this hit in order to not end up where Neiman Marcus and some of these other guys did. Just 20 seconds. Who's getting experience right right now? Uh, Well, most stores open. I'm not sure that anybody has a good experience right now, but I would think that (laughs) some of the mask guys and, you know, who have already worked on their stores, um, and have added different kinds of features and different fulfillment options are probably providing the best experience for customers. But I think as a whole, it is a different experience because of limiting of how many consumers are in the store at once, different closure times. So the whole thing is different, but I think those retailers that had already been investing over the long term on fulfillment, trying to understand what their consumers wanted in Omnichannel, they're providing the best experience as we speak right now. Seema Shah, Director of Consumer and Retail Trends at Credit Intel. Thank you so much for being with us. The experience is currently walking from the bathroom <laughs> to the bedroom to the kitchen. I'm Lisa Abramo, along with my co-host and colleague, Paul Sweetie. This is Bloomberg Markets. In this pandemic era, there has been a growing focus on private equity's involvement in the healthcare and hospital sector in terms of its normal business model and how that affects the delivery of care. Joining us now is Heather Perlberg, a private equity reporter for Bloomberg, who wrote a story about some of the consequences of that. Heather, can you just start off by giving us a sense of how significantly private equity has invested in the healthcare space over the past few years? Hi, yeah. I mean, private equity has poured billions and billions of dollars into healthcare broadly. I mean, they're buying up physician staffing companies, hospitals. Uh, There's been lots of reporting about that. As far as medical practices go, that's been a little quieter, but estimates are around $10 billion just in that space. So, Heather, you know, I just when I first saw this, I said there's got to be a lot of conflicts of interest here. The private equity companies really looking to maximize returns. Often they do that by really pressuring revenues, cutting costs, that type of thing. But that necessarily isn't in the best interest of patient care. Is this a good idea or not? Uh, A lot of doctors would tell you it's probably not a good marriage. It's not a good fit. Uh, For the most part, PE does what they do in other industries, and that can work spectacularly. In medicine, you know, there's something particularly problematic when you're dealing with people's health and lives. Although when you take a look at some of the investments, it's in very specialized areas that have been highly profitable, including dermatology, with a lot of cosmetically driven types of procedures driving profits. So you could say it's a business like any other. And I'm wondering how they have operated through this period of time as selective or or sort of uh, selective surgeries have been prevented as people are prioritized for their COVID symptoms. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And these guys are hurting. Um, revenue is down 20 to 80% at some of these practices. Offices have been shut down. I mean, in some cases, people stay open, but they're deemed non-essential by a lot of government officials and doctors individually are just making decisions not to stay open. And that will, that'll pressure them. All right. So what's... It, 
when when I think private equity, I think debt. Are the are the private equity companies loading these companies up with debt, and now they may face some challenges here, given what's going on in the market right now? Absolutely, they're saddled with pretty big debt loads. A lot of them, you know, will get money from BDCs or other private lenders, and that's going to be trickier to pay off if money is not coming in. So they're going to have to figure out different ways out of this. Some of them are getting money from the CARES Act. Um, But we'll probably see some more of these companies really struggle or go under. I guess on the other hand, there is um, a big opportunity for private equity and other investors who've been just kind of sitting on the sidelines waiting to invest when you know, there's distress in the market. And you could say doctors will be more financially strained than they've ever been. Uh, And that's a buying opportunity. Doctors who turned private equity down six months ago are coming back and saying, hey, wait, you know, can we talk about that again? But that's actually surprising to me, given the fact that we've seen an increasing amount of regulatory pushback, or at least political pushback. I believe Senator Warren has come out and talked about private equity investments, in particular in hospitals that have received money to stay afloat during the pandemic. I know Carlisle had an investment that became uh, somewhat uh, controversial, but I'm trying to figure out how that plays into the calculus of whether private equity is willing to swoop in and try to pick up bargains when the equation may change changed significantly due to political pressure. Yeah, I think that's definitely in the backdrop. Um, I mean, a lot of the money, the money coming from health and human services was really intended for um, healthcare workers directly. So I think that's, that's a little bit different than the payroll protection program and some of the others. But um, there's a lot of criticism. I think the largest firms uh, take that harder than some folks in the middle market who, you know, don't have the same kind of communication operations and are dealing with investors more than they're dealing with reputation risk, frankly. So, Heather, have we had any successful, um, I guess, you know, kind of spin outs or sales here by the private equity folks? Is, are these generating good returns for them? Do we have any evidence on that? Yeah, um, you know, Varsity Partners is a, one of these middle market firms that did an early deal. They made more than 100%. Uh, I think there was an Audax Group presentation on the advanced dermatology deal saying that they had quadrupled revenue to $200 million in the time they were in that business. So the early firms say that they're doing really well. It's sort of when the second or third private equity owner comes into the picture, it seems they're squeezing something that's already been made as efficient as it can be at times. Interesting. Heather Perbroke, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate that fascinating uh, uh, news uh, coming out, column from you, a uh, uh, news story. Heather Perlberg, Perlberg, private equity reporter for Bloomberg. Private equity, there's so much cash on the sidelines, Lisa, that you know, I guess it should not be surprising to see them get into the healthcare space as typically, you know, a pretty solid place for uh, revenue growth. A couple questions that I have about private equity right now. First comes to that cash pile. I believe it's $1.4 trillion. They talk about the dry powder on the sidelines. And I do wonder when we're going to start to see it deployed, how low valuations have to go before they actually say, okay, we're getting a good deal now. And then the second question that I have emerging from this entire era is whether they emerge as sort of 
the, the, the lost child of the financial system, right? It was the banks the last time around that yep. took the brunt of the heat. Are private equity firms going to be the bad boys this time around? And are people going to point to them and the uh, excessive amounts of leverage that some of their companies have taken on as being a, a part of the problem? I don't know the answer. I know politically there is a lot of push toward that level. And we're seeing the PPP, for example, was uh, those loans were not allowed to go to certain private equity companies because of this type of pressure. But I wonder what that will mean in terms of regulations, in terms of money flows coming out on the other side of this. Yeah, that'll be very interesting to see. I think, you know, if you're a private equity, you can certainly say, hey, this is a once in a, you know, literally 100 years uh, issue, a pandemic, a government ordered shutdown. Uh, Everything was great going into the pandemic. And, uh, you know, it's you know, a lot of these things are just beyond our control. Uh, but clearly, I think we're already starting to see, at least I think really over the last several weeks, when certainly in the retail space with Demon Marcus and, and JCPenney and, and J. Crew, I mean, the, uh, the, the challenge businesses with challenging and levered balance sheets, those are the ones uh, most at, at risk here. So um, we'll have to really see how this goes. But a lot of pain likely to come across a number of industries uh, as this economy slowly starts to open back up after what has been a two, two and a half month uh, lockdown. That'll be it for us. For Lisa Abramowitz, I'm Paul Sweeney. This is Bloomberg Markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.